me see you. And keep them up. Don't just do this. And don't go half-masked on me. Go all the way up. All right. Now, I am inviting those of you with your hands raised to be with me and us this Friday night at 7 o'clock because we are, we are resurrecting and moving forward with our young adults' ministry. And, and I, I want to share the vision God's put on my heart for you, and then I want to hear you. I wanna, I'm just going to sit there, and I'm going to call on you, and I'm going to ask you to share with me and us what you would like in a young adult ministry, because we're going to reach this age, and we're going to touch this city in that age group. Amen? So um, it's going to be good. We're going to have coffee. We're going to have water. And we're going to have popcorn. We're going to have chips and salsa and coffee. Okay? It's all free. And we're going to have great worship. And then we're going to have a, a real rich time of sharing in the Word. So that's this Friday night, 7 o'clock. Can we say that together? This Friday night. If you say, I've got a date, I can't come, bring the date. And like I said Sunday, I'll interview them for you and tell you whether or not you ought to keep seeing them. I'll do that for you. So, so really be here Friday night. What else are you going to do? Where are you going to go that's better than getting together with God's people and worshiping the Lord? So that's Friday night, 7 o'clock. Then you ladies, don't miss the ladies meeting Saturday morning. A lot happening this weekend, right? All right, let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for your blessing on the house of God tonight. We pray that you will speak to us out of the precious and powerful, matchless Word of God. Give us a word from your Word, Lord. Build our faith. Help us to be a people who understand the times and the seasons that we are not caught unaware. And we thank you for it. Would you breathe a prayer, church, and say, Lord, speak to my heart tonight. I receive your Word, which is able to save my soul in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him it's going to be good tonight. You're going to be glad you came. All righty. Now, we've been, we've been, this is the fourth week and probably the last week uh, that we're going to be on this Israel's God, Israel God's timepiece. And uh, Israel is God's timepiece. Israel is the epicenter of Bible prophecy, especially end time prophecy. If you want to know and understand end-time prophecy, you've got to understand Israel and why Israel is so important, uh, number one, to God. God calls Israel the apple of his eye, and the church also the apple of his eye. And that means the pupil. So uh, the, the, the church and Israel are very, very, very close to God's heart. And so much so that you know what God told Abraham uh, when Abraham was... Uh, chosen as the father of the Hebrew race. God said, those that curse you, I will curse. And those that bless you, I will bless. You cannot curse Israel and fare well. You just can't. So we bless Jerusalem. We bless Israel. Not because they're perfect. They're not. Matter of fact, as a nation, Israel's not walking with Messiah. They've rejected Messiah as a nation. But that doesn't remove who they are. In, in God's eyes. So we're going to do that. And, and tonight I want to talk to you, just end this tonight, um, with this title, A World Caught by Surprise. 
I asked you Sunday, I said, how many of you have said to yourself or asked somebody the question, um, what in the world is going on in this world? I mean, how many, I ask that probably once a day. What in the world is going on? Now, I have answers in the Bible, but I think if you were to go out there with a microphone and into any restaurant, for instance, and just interview people and say, tell me what's been on your mind lately. Well, what's been on my mind is the state of this world, the Middle East, America. There's so much trouble, turmoil, the terrorism, all of the threats against Israel, Iran going for the bomb, and all these things. And so I, I sometimes wonder what in the world is going on. Well, Jesus knew that this day would come. So I'm going to look tonight, first of all, I'll do a little recap, and then I'm going to look at what Jesus said about the end times. I want you to say with me something. Say, not only is he the Savior, but he's a prophet. He says, it's prophet Jesus. And you know what? It's philosopher Jesus. It's teacher Jesus. It's Savior Jesus, but it's also healer Jesus. And it's also the judge Jesus. And, and it's also prophet Jesus. Jesus prophesied all the time, all the time. People don't stop and think about that. But all the time, Jesus predicted future events. So we're going to look at some of them tonight. Now, last time we looked at the war of Gog and Magog. That's funny sounding, isn't it? Every time I read that, it's like I'm reading something out of um, some science fiction novel. But Gog and Magog are Russia. And Ezekiel identifies them in Ezekiel chapter 38 as the land that is going to uh, gather around itself a confederacy of other nations that hate Israel, and they're going to come down against Israel. And the war is called either the Ezekiel War, World War III. Uh, some call it the fuse to Armageddon. Whatever you want to call it, it hasn't happened yet. You read Ezekiel 38, none of those events have happened yet. Nowhere in history has it taken place where the land of the uttermost north, which is only Russia, along with a confederacy of nations that are named, Iran, Iraq, um, Libya, Turkey, can you believe Ezekiel named them 24 centuries ago? Because our God knows the end from the beginning, and only a real God, the God of the Bible, knows what's going to happen 24 centuries down the tunnel of time. But our God knows. And he used prophets to prophesy about future events. So Ezekiel prophesied that there would be a concerted attack against Israel in, he says it, in the latter years is when this will happen. In the last days. Now, we're in, I believe, the last of the last days. Not to get too complicated, but I shared with you a few couple of Wednesday nights ago that the last days really began when Jesus rose from the dead. That's when the last days began. Hebrews chapter 1, he says, God who in the past time spoke to us through the prophets has now in these last days spoken to us by his Son. So notice the writer of Hebrews right then said, hey, we're in the last days. And in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. But now, since Israel became a nation again, which was a huge prophetic fulfillment, we are in 
most Bible scholars and prophecy watchers believe the last of the last days. You might say when Israel became a nation again, the hourglass was turned upside down and the final grains of sand began to fall through. And so there is going to be an attack against Israel. It hasn't happened yet. We also saw, and that's not, by the way, that's not Armageddon. It might be the fuse to Armageddon. But this war, the Ezekiel War, all of the players involved are different from the players that are involved in the Armageddon War. It might be the fuse that leads to Armageddon. But this war, this attack against God's people and God's land, it stands alone in Ezekiel 38. Go home and read it. Ezekiel 38 and 39, God took two whole chapters in the Word of God to tell us about this war. Now, we saw that God himself will intervene on her behalf, and he will wipe out the enemy completely. Now, with everything leading toward a planet on fire, because that's where everything is going, with war, it's on fire, with war, it's on fire, with deception, it's on fire, with violence, we're in a world on fire. And you wonder, as we look at Bible prophecy, what will be the mental and the spiritual disposition of humanity as these times approach? Will our world be living on pins and needles before the coming of Christ? Will, you know, uh, will people be crying out for help and salvation? Will there be a great move of repentance and a crying out for mercy as these things uh, coagulate and come together and, and we see all these things beginning to happen? You know, are we in a, a nation that says, oh my gosh, the end is coming, let's repent? Is that what we're going to see? No. The Bible says that at the time of all this approaching trouble, the hue and the cry of government officials all the way down to the common man is going to be what? Say it with me. Peace, peace. Now, listen to the Apostle Paul's sobering words. Now, Paul is prophesying here. He says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 to 3, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord... So comes like a thief in the night. For when they say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. You know what you got right there? A world caught by surprise. That's a world caught by surprise. He says in verse 4, but you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. Can we just say together, thank God, I'm not in darkness. The, the church shouldn't be. We should understand these things. He said, you're not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night, nor are we of darkness. Therefore, let's read this together, can we? Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Now that's the call of God on every believer in the day in which we live, to watch and be sober-minded. Understand the signs of the times. Understand what the Bible says about our day. The Message Bible, I had to put this in here because the Message Bible puts it in a way that you can't forget. So same verses, but just from the Message paraphrase. I don't think, friends, that I need to deal with the question of when all this is going to happen. 
You know as well as I that the day of the master's coming can't be posted on our calendars. He won't call ahead and make an appointment any more than a burglar would. About the time of e that everybody's walking around complacently, catch this, about the time everybody's walking around complacently congratulating each other, saying, we've sure got it made, peace, peace, peace and safety. Now we can take it easy. Suddenly, everything will fall apart. It's going to come as suddenly and inescapably as birth pangs to a pregnant woman. So it's not that the end time will be now, that's, that's the end of the quote. Now, now, this is me talking. It's not that the end time world will be crying out for peace they don't have. That's not what it means when they're saying peace, peace, like bring us peace, give us peace. No, that what they're doing is they're heralding a false peace that they believe they already have. In other words, they're going to be deceived into believing that all is well that there is no approaching judgment, there is no danger, there are no consequences for their rejection of God's love through Christ. See, there is a deception that comes upon whole cultures, whole nations, and the entire world. And Paul is pr uh, predicting here. He's saying, they're going to be saying peace, peace, because they think they've got it. And they don't understand the times in which they live. And in just a minute, I'm going to show you two prime examples, Noah's generation and Lot's generation. So this is all going to tie together, so stay with me. Let's always remember that there is indeed a fierce judgment coming upon the world at the return of Christ. How many of you know that's true? See, we look forward to his return, but the world won't. The world will be terrified at his return. Revelation says they will wail and mourn and, uh, and, and, and uh, weep when they see the returning Christ. It will not be a joyous sight. For the world that has rejected him. Paul the Apostle writes again to the Thessalonians in the second letter to the Thessalonians uh, of this coming judgment. And let's look at it because judgment is a, as real as is God's love. As a matter of fact, because God is love, he also judges. Because he is holy, he must have justice. So let's look. 2 Thessalonians 1. 6 through 10, watch this. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us. He's talking to persecuted people here. To give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Everybody say he's coming back. Here it is right there. He's, re he's coming again with his mighty angels and he goes on to say, in flaming fire. And what is he doing? Taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, can I pause a minute and show you? He did not say those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ or were they good Buddhists or were they good Muslims or were they good. He doesn't name any other faith. He says, the flaming fire of vengeance comes on those who have not obeyed what everyone, read it, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it is exclusive, isn't it? It is a one-way proposition that Jesus made to the world, isn't it? Yeah. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. Nobody gets to the Father but through me. Now, he says in verse 9, those that have rejected the gospel, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. 
Verse 10, when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. So notice he'll be glorified in the saints, but he'll bring judgment upon the world. That's, that's the lion of Judah. He's already come as the sacrificed lamb. He's returning as the lion of Judah, executing judgment. Now, in a politically correct world, that's real hard to hear. Boy, I caught a lashing. Let me tell you, I caught a lashing from what I said last Wednesday night. Boy, did I get some people mad at me over what I said last Wednesday night. And do you know that my whole career of pastoring, only in the last few years have I had people getting mad at me for what I say. But, but what I say hadn't changed. You know what's changed? Our culture. That's what's changed. Because I just say simple gospel stuff and people get mad at me. Send me emails, angry at me. And all I did was read the book. So pray for your pastor. Okay. <laughs> now, the message of the Bible over and over again is that when Christ returns to gather his people and execute judgment on the world, the world will be asleep. That's the message of end-time prophecy. The world will be caught completely off guard. They'll have been lulled into a false sense of security that will be thoroughly shattered at Christ's return. Paul wrote that Jesus will come unannounced. He's going to come unexpected like a thief in the night. And Jesus himself continuously taught in his parables of the need to be ready for his return. In fact, when he was finished answering the disciples' uh, three questions that we've been going over for the last few weeks uh, of when the temple would be destroyed and what would be the signs of his coming, Jesus went on and continued his discourse in the remainder of Matthew 24 and all the way through Matthew 25, he kept on talking and he gave parables and he gave three powerful parables. Parable of the householder, the parable of the ten virgins, and the parable of the talents, each of which warns of the need to be ready for his return. Look what he did. He said in the parable of the householder, and again, he's, he's still answering his disciples here. He says, the master of that servant, the master being Jesus, will come on a day when that servant is not looking for him and at an hour that he is not aware of. In other words, caught by surprise. Then in the parable of the ten virgins, Jesus finished the parable by saying these words, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the son of man is coming. Do you hear the repeated phrase, watch, pray, watch, pray, watch, pray. In the parable of the talents, he closed by saying, after a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And the servant who had not invested his talent in kingdom work was caught off guard and he was caught unprepared. That's the whole gist of the parables. Get ready, get ready, be ready, be on guard, be watchful. For your Lord is coming in a time you do not know. And if he's got to tell the church to be watchful, where is the world? The world is going to be asleep and totally caught off guard. And not to mention, he went into the well-known description of two men in a field working. One was taken, the other left. And two women grinding at the mill, one taken and the other left. The idea with both of them being the one left behind was caught off guard. The one that was left behind was surprised because suddenly somebody they knew Somebody they were in a relationship with, somebody they worked with is gone. And they are caught by surprise. 
Now, I believe the two greatest descriptions of what our world will look like just prior to Jesus' return to judge the world are found in his allusion to Noah and to Lot. Now, I want to look at what he said about Noah's day first. He said, of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Verse 38, for as in the days, this is Matthew 24, for as in the days before the flood, look what they were doing. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, and they were giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Please catch this. This is powerful stuff from our Lord Jesus Christ, prophesying way down the tunnel of time to our day. We know from Genesis 6, when he alludes to uh, the days of Noah, we have most of our information about Noah's generation, what it was like from Genesis 6. We know from Genesis 6, the days of Noah were marked by, catch this, widespread violence, a total breakdown in morality, and descent into wickedness so great that Genesis describes the wickedness this way. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only. Everybody say only. So there wasn't one righteous thought. Only evil continually. Wow. Think about that. Every one of man's thoughts were only wicked, only godless, only fleshly, only displeasing the Lord 24 hours a day. It says in verse 11, the earth also was corrupt before God. All flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Not, notice not some, not most, all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Mankind was at the end here. That's what Genesis 6 tells us about the days of Noah. And remember Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days that I come back. Now you have to exclude the church there because the church does think righteous thoughts because we've been born again and we have the word of God. But you take away our born-again experience, our knowledge of God, our walk with Christ, and put us out there living in the flesh, we would end up the same way. We stand by grace. We stand by faith in the Lord Jesus. But here in Noah's time, Jesus looking back, using it as an example, mankind was at the end. The cup of God's wrath was full. His patience was exhausted. God said these words, the end of all flesh has come before me. And he gave them 120 years to get it right. Because from the moment he said, the end of all flesh has come before me, this is when he first visited Noah. Noah was working on the ark 120 years. So God gave man 120 years to get it right. What's so interesting here? is that Jesus describes Noah's time very differently. Now, we read about the violence and the immorality and all that, but look what Jesus said about Noah's day. And it's kind of confusing because look what he says. As in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking. Everybody say, oh, my. They were eating and drinking. That doesn't sound worthy of hell to me, right? And then he says, marrying and giving in marriage. 
<laughs> you read the, I used to read this and go, well, big deal. Until the day that Noah entered the ark. But see, that has nothing to do with what Genesis 6 just told us about the days of Noah. So what's up with this? Because to me, he's describing normalcy. I used to read that and say, what's the big deal? Then I began to realize that Jesus was driving at this. Here's his point. In the midst of total moral breakdown, widespread and devastating violence, and universal corruption, Noah's generation was totally and utterly unmoved, unconvicted, and unconcerned with their condition. Apathy ruled the day. Everybody say with me, asleep. Asleep. That's what we're seeing here. They were marrying, giving in marriage, eating, drinking, working, making a profit, living their life out. And what is the point? Well, here's the point. We know from 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, that Noah preached to them for 120 years and he didn't have a single convert. Now, now I'm a preacher. I'm a, I'm a minister. Every Sunday, we're seeing people get saved. If, I'm, if I go a couple of Sundays with nobody being saved, I'm seeking God as to what's wrong. If I preach 120 years without one convert, I'm out of the ministry. I'm out. I'm doubting my calling. But here, here's the point, everybody. He had not one convert. Not one said, oh, judgment's coming. I need to get right with God. Get this, all the while he swung that hammer and cut those boards, the spectacle of that giant ark growing and looming before their eyes each and every day, in spite of all his warnings about coming judgment, Noah's generation yawned, turned away from his words, and gave themselves over to a life of serving the flesh, eating, drinking. Do you get it? That's Jesus' point. Here's Noah every day. He's swinging a hammer with one hand, preaching with the other. Peter tells us he was a preacher of righteousness. But nobody turned. The only people that went into the ark with him was his own family. That was it. They married, they ate, they drank. They were utterly apathetic and blind to their plight. They had no clue. Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be right before I return. There's going to be a worldwide apathy a great big yawn about all these silly preachers, these church people, forget it, don't listen to them. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. They had totally accepted, watch this, they had totally accepted the depraved and fallen condition they were in. Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be when I return. Ephesians 4 19, I believe. Paul says this in Ephesians 4, 19. He's talking about the Gentile world, and he says, being past feeling, they have given themselves over to all manner of lasciviousness and lewdness. Now, what does past feeling mean? It means you no longer feel conviction. It means you don't, you, you don't feel uh, 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 shame. There's no more blush. There's no more caring. You're living in complete immorality, which Noah's day was doing, and there's no shame about it. There's no blush. You're past feeling. Your conscience has been seared. Now, let me ask you a question. 
Do you see that happening in our culture? Sure. What, 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 20 years ago, I started preaching when I was 19. When I started preaching, I'm going to tell you, it's a whole different country now. Because when I started preaching, I, I would have people convicted and, and I would talk to people that felt you know, ashamed of the way that they were living and they felt badly about it. But I, I'm dealing with a whole different animal now. People who say, no, what? here's the deal. You're wrong and I'm right. Wrong is now right and right is now wrong. And if you say that wrong is wrong, you're wrong. There's been a total flip-flop. And it has been this gradual, the frog in the boiling water being past feeling. The, the frog in the boiling water. That, that he's in it. The, the water's getting hot so slowly he doesn't realize it's getting hotter and hotter and hotter and he's about to be boiled alive. And, and it's that way with the, the conscience of people that you can be. You see, nobody falls overnight. It's an incremental step-by-step step down where you, you get conditioned to your last step down and once you're conditioned to it, you take another one down. And by the time you're all the way at the bottom, you can't believe, or others that know you can't believe, you're way down there when you used to be way up here. How did this happen? It didn't happen overnight. It happened in little decisions incrementally over time, and that is what has happened to America and Europe and other parts of the world. We're seeing no more shame, no more conviction, no more sorrow, but, but if you think something is wrong, you're the wrong one. You're the nutty one. You're the one that needs to be rebuked because you're not loving See, we've totally twisted the concept of love. Let me tell you something. Um, people who hate the truth, who come against you for hating the truth, are only revealing that they like living in the dark. And that's what Jesus said. And, and believe me, I used to be there. I'm not condemning anybody. The Lord's got to come in and rescue you from this. But that's what happened in Noah's time, the frog in the boiling water. Eventually, Every thought was evil. Every thought was wicked. Every thought was godless. And they didn't even know it. Eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, turning a prophet, doing business, until Noah was called to go into the ark. And the Bible says God himself shut the door and the rain began to fall. Pitter-patter, pitter-patter. And only then, it says in the Bible, did they realize they were utterly caught by surprise when the first raindrops began to fall. Jesus said, and did not know. They did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. It won't be with a flood. It will be with Christ returning. Now to Lot, who lived in the infamous city of Sodom. Luke adds Jesus' reference to Lot, and Matthew did not. So we're going to Luke now. And Here's what Jesus said out of Luke. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot. They ate, drank, bought, sold, planted, built. Gee, that sounds like Noah's day, right? All right. Uh, but on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, the angel forced him out. What happened? Read it with me. It rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Wow. Now, who quoted that? Who gave us those words right there? Jesus, Jesus gave us those words. 
We know from Genesis and from the prophet Ezekiel what Lot's generation was like. Let's look at what Ezekiel tells us about it. Here's Ezekiel prophesying to God's people. He says, look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. That's a jab right there. She and her daughter had, ready, pride, fullness of food, abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. Now that's the way Ezekiel describes Sodom. All right? So pride, the sin of pride. They weren't taking care of the needy. They were idle, sitting around, not doing anything, not working. And really, I do believe this. Idleness is indeed the devil's workshop. God created us us to be busy, to work, and that's a whole other topic. Now, those who try to say that Sodom's judgment did not come because of widespread homosexuality and sexual perversion like to refer to and do refer to this passage. Let me look at it again. This was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. You hear people talk about it today who are defending the homosexual lifestyle, saying that God's word doesn't condemn it or call it wrong. They go to this verse. This is what Sodom did wrong, dude. It had nothing to do with sexual perversion. I've had him say this to me. Here was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She had pride, fullness of food. She was idle, and they didn't help the poor folks. So let me ask you a question. Can you imagine God pouring fire and brimstone out of heaven onto a city when that was all that was wrong? Wouldn't we also be toast? All right, now, those who try to say that Sodom's judgment did not become, uh, come because of uh, the homosexuality and perversion, go to that verse. But here's the deal. Ezekiel's not done. He goes on to say in verse 50, the very next verse, and they were haughty, that's proud, pride again, and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw fit. Now, there's the problem. Abomination. Now, I'm not singling out any one sin. I'm, I'm not. Only to point out that there is a very, very strong movement in our day to re-educate and um, uh, sort of help all of us to understand that homosexuality is not wrong. And it's very strong. All the sitcoms are involved in it. You you can't watch a sitcom anymore that doesn't have that introduced into it in a positive way. It's everywhere. It's It's in the movies. It's everywhere. It's a huge movement to come against the idea that it's a sinful lifestyle, as would be fornication or adultery or theft, or any other kind of lifestyle that God clearly calls wrong, any moral sin. There's many of them, not just that one. But that was Sodom's sin. That was the problem. What was the abomination they committed? God's word could not be more clear. Genesis describes to us a city utterly in the grip of socially accepted, socially sanctioned sexual perversion. I mean, you can't read Genesis and not come away with it. It's, it's clear as a bell. Both young and old, the Bible says, from every quarter of the city sought to have and demanded to have sexual relations with the male-looking angels visiting the city. That's just, it's there. You can't rip the pages out. I'm just reading the book. 
Well, that's Old Testament. Ah, but it's all through the New Testament. Now watch. Almost two entire chapters are dedicated to describing these things. Peter tells us it was so bad that Lot, quote, was tormented in his soul by the wickedness he saw and heard day after day. Have you ever felt that way in our culture right now? Have you felt yourself vexed? Have you? I mean, when you look at wrong being called right and right being called wrong and sort of a persecution madness beginning to sweep over the Western world, Christians being martyred right now in the Middle East and Iran and other places, uh, singled out just because they're Christian. I read a little 14-year-old teenager confessed that he was a Christian and and he was burned alive last week. Just these terrible things because you're Christian, because you're Christian. Okay, So, and I want to predict to you, those of you that love the Lord and are in the Word of God and have the Spirit of God in you, that the days are going to get tougher where you are going to experience what Lot did. Vex daily in your soul by the things you see and hear. And I got a message for you at the end of this because I didn't come tonight to give you a big downer. You're looking at me. You know, I understand. I understand. I get it. But I'm just reading to you the Word of God, okay? What did Jesus say about their state of mind leading up to Sodom's destruction? They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. So we see uh, he's making a parallel between Noah's day and Lot's day. They both planted, built, married, gave in marriage, ate, drank. They were both generations totally and completely numb to their condition and to approaching judgment. In other words, they were like Noah's generation, unmoved, unconvicted, and unconcerned with their condition. And don't forget, they had received a visit, Sodom had, from the most godly man on earth at that time, Abraham. Abraham, along with his own servants, had literally delivered them, the the city of Sodom, and Lot and his family from captivity to a number of foreign kings, yet Sodom, in spite of that, only grew worse in their perversion. For me, the lesson here is that of the sobering, seductive power of unchecked sin to blind, to deceive, and to corrupt a society to the point that it no longer experiences conviction. Are we getting there? We are. That's why I want to be on the radio in every state of the union. That's why I want to take the word of God as far and wide as God lets us do it. Because there's only one cure for this kind of numbness and and, uh, uh, insensitivity and shamelessness. And that is the preaching of the word of God. That's the only solution. Because it brings light. It brings light. And I don't want to preach at them. I want to tell them about God's love and God's forgiveness. In both of these examples, an entire generation had become so numbed to violence and perversion, they no longer saw it as wrong. This condition is the final stage. It's the final stage in a culture ripe for judgment. Hence, Paul's final words in chapter 1 of Romans. Listen to what he says after uh, Romans 1 one of the most powerful things ever written. But here's the last verse of Romans 1. They, those practicing these things, they 
know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die. Yet they do them anyway, but it doesn't stop there. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. Are we there? We're there. Isn't it amazing how history repeats? Isn't it amazing how the cycle repeats? Now, let's pray for America and the rest of the world that God will move in mercy and deliver many from this fate and send revival once again. There's only one thing that's ever going to change this. It's not going to be a, a, a new president. That's not the ultimate final solution. Or a new Senate. We got a new Senate, and, and good grief, what has it done? They don't hear us anymore. So what is it going to take? A move of the Spirit of God sweeping the country. So let's stand together tonight, can we? And, and note with me, everybody, just as a little sidebar here, Jesus fully believed in the testimony of Noah and the ark. And Jesus fully believed that fire fell on Sodom. So people who poo-poo the Bible and say, oh, that's just silly, that's just myth, that's just fables, that's just, you know, that's just the writer speaking metaphorically to make a point. No, no. Jesus said, as they were, so shall it be. So let's go to him in prayer tonight. Father, we just thank you for the word of God. We thank you for your goodness. Can we lift holy hands up towards him and just say, Lord, tonight, our culture is collapsing. But there is an answer, and it's your gospel. Lord, in Jesus' name, help me to be a light that shines into the dark and help us to do our part in taking the word of God to every state in this union starting right here and help me Lord to keep my conscience clear that I do not become deceived with the rest of this world. In Jesus' name, let's sing a stanza and let's just worship the Lord. Can we enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with